Romans chapter 13. All right, Lee. (laughs) Romans 13. Dual citizenship. I'm going to talk about that this morning. Uh, Right before I I jump into that, my wife wanted me to just let you know, just kind of confirm, I should have said something ahead of time, but we're not having a potluck this month. Uh, just a lot of people sick and and all of that. So um, otherwise, we would be doing that today after service. The other thing I wanted to mention is the share basket up here is if you have things that you want to share, that's that's sort of a, a give and take basket. I mean, people that want to share things, drop them in the basket. If you see something in there you like or you want, grab it before somebody else does. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to jump right into the text this morning. We're going to go through the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13 as we look at human government, civil government, and our responsibility in it, our response to it, uh, when it comes into conflict with the fact that we are citizens of heaven. We truly have, as believers, dual citizenship and, and we, we need to keep some things straight in our minds because on one hand, on the extreme, there's anarchy where we're blowing off the government. We're just going out there and doing our own thing and we're coming again and doing it. And, and that's ridiculous. That's not what God has called us to. On the other hand is to just buckle when there are things that are going on with the government that fly in the face of walking with Christ. This is, I'll tell you what, folks. This is a relevant study for today. And you don't need me to tell you that. All you got to do is look at the headlines on any particular day. We're going to talk about some current headlines that are going on and some things that are happening today uh, across Canada and across the United States. So the first seven verses, the Apostle Paul writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they're God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, Customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So what does that mean, Pastor John? <laughs> There's a lot there. Well, the first thing I want to, I want to look at here, folks, is that, you know me, we are all about context. You have got to understand this passage in the context of the surrounding things that are being said. I believe that a text without a context is a con, uh, or it's a pretext. And a pretext is it's an excuse to do or say something that's inaccurate. Uh, so 
I want to look at the before and after context of Romans 13, 1 through 7. So what comes before? Now, I want you to understand that Paul didn't write his epistles in, in chapter and verse divisions. So those are added, as we likely know, later on. And, and think about it in terms of like if you sat down to write a letter to a friend, you're not going to have subhead or headings in different <laughs> paragraphs, and you're not going to have you're not going to number every sentence. We do that because we want to be able to locate where things are in the scripture, but you've got to see it as a whole. This is a letter. It is a literary whole. And these, this passage here in Romans 7 is, it's sort of like what's in between a couple of bookends. And it's real important that we understand that. So going into the highlights, I'm not going to read through it. We've studied it already. Uh, and we'll study what's beyond this uh, next week and following. But highlights from chapter 12. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be, de- be devoted to one another in love. Honor no- one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, he'll heap burning coals on his head. That's what we looked at in chapter 12. So what comes after? The same thing goes for what directly comes after these verses in in chapter 13. And here's a a brief summary. Again, we'll get into it. The continuing debt we have to to love one another. That's a principle that's laid out. Owe no man anything but love. And we'll talk about that and what it doesn't mean. But also what it does. He says, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this, in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say that love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So how does that all fit when we look at these verses regarding civil government? It's this. If you look at this, if you look at this as a whole, you see that what's being said here is it's really, it's the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 22 when he gave the great commandment. Love God, love other people. Pretty simple. Now, neighbor love, what's being talked about here in context, that's the bookends within which the conversation about submission to governing authorities falls. So, The way it breaks down is it's love, and then law, and then love again. Uh, The point in this is we're responsible as citizens of heaven and citizens of the state to submit to the laws of the state so long as they reflect and don't violate our central commandments to love God and to love our neighbor. Let me say that again. We're responsible as citizens of heaven and citizens of the state to submit to the laws of the state so long as they reflect and don't violate our central commandments to love God and to love our neighbor. 
Understand? That is really important. Uh, and we're going to launch into the text here, but keep that in mind as we go through this because it's central to having a good understanding, a balanced understanding of what's being said. He says in verse 1, I'll read the first couple of verses again, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Are you going to resist authority? You're resisting God. You want to be disobedient to the law? You're being disobedient to God is what he's saying here. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, the judgment that's spoken about here, he's not talking about eternal damnation. He's not talking about that kind of judgment. This is, it's a judicial word in the original language, and what it means is that you will bring, you will be condemned in what you do. Judicially condemned means you're found guilty. Okay? So that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about, this isn't talking about eternal judgment. If that was the case, we would be running around like crazy trying to cover our tracks every day, every step of the way. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is if you don't want to live a life where you're going around feeling condemned, don't break the law. It's very practical here. Clearly, at the outset of this chapter, we see that we have to acknowledge that every single leader, good or bad, has been allowed to come to power by God. Now, and this, this stuff, it kind of twists my head, because whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether they're evil or not, God's appointed them. He's allowed them to come to power. And I go back to, we're told in Isaiah that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. They're above. They're beyond your finding out. So what do I have to do with passages like this? I have to trust. I have to trust that God knows what he's doing I might not, but that I don't understand it. I, I get weary sometimes of theologians, even pastors or leaders, assuming that if they don't understand it, that God must somehow be wrong. Yeah, folks, we don't understand all of this. This is a, it's a difficult passage. And yet we've got to understand that God knows what he's doing. He's allowing people to come to power because he accomplishes his purposes through them. That's what it is to be subject to earthly leaders. In Proverbs 21.1, we read, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. I love that. When I don't understand what's going on with the government, I just remember it's like God is to say, Okay, you know, over here, over here. And he is the one directing, ultimately. That doesn't mean he's endorsing. We'll get to that. I, I also, this is one of the things that, that, again, it twists my mind because I think about, uh, I, I get to wondering about horrible leaders throughout history. And, and folks, we, I could spend the next month <laughs> uh, talking about just that. But let me give you just a couple of quick statistics. In the last hundred years, uh, we've seen the likes of Stalin. Minimum 7 million people. Some say 30 million people. Because under totalitarian regimes, they don't give you numbers. <laughs> Try to get COVID numbers out of China. It's just it's not going to happen. 
But so people have estimated somewhere between 7 and 30 million people. Now, Sidong, in China, with the Chinese Revolution, somewhere between 48 and 78 million people. Hitler, yeah, 6 million of the Jews, but another 6 million, the people that he either annihilated or 4 million Soviet or Russian troops that he left to die. About 12 million people. Uh, Paul Pot, I remember the killing fields back in the 70s in Cambodia. 1.7 million. There, and, and there, I'm not even going into the African leaders and the African genocides that we've seen in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or in Rwanda and, and all of these, and Nigeria. And, and there, and there are current genocides going on. Evil, evil, evil leaders. And yet God has it. It's hard stuff. Uh, how do we reconcile this? Insofar as we study the scriptures, as you know, verse by verse, line by line, book by book, we're going to look at the hard stuff and the easy stuff and everything in between. Folks, this is hard stuff. I, I don't understand it. I will walk out of here not fully understanding the passage of scripture that I'm teaching this morning, and neither will you. But again, that's where we elevate our understanding by saying, Lord, I don't get it, but I get you. I don't understand this, but I understand your love. I don't get why evil exists in the world, but I do get that you are over all of it, and you are rapidly bringing this age to a close where evil will be done away. And I praise God for that. You look around, you see that governing authorities in our day are increasingly hostile against the church of Jesus Christ. It's happening. So the question becomes, what happens when the government implements and mandates something which goes against the revealed will of God? That's a fair question, and it's one that the Bible addresses. Acts chapter 5, it's a wonderful account of the apostles in Jerusalem after the resurrection and the ascension, and they're there. I mean, you look at the difference in just the apostle Peter going from warming his hands at the enemy's fire and cursing, cussing out a little girl that said, don't I know you? Yeah, and all of that, I mean, him being broken before the Lord to now, after Pentecost, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, boldly standing up, 3,000 people getting saved the first day. And these guys are out there and people are just flocking to them in droves because they were speaking words of life. Governing authorities didn't like it. It's called the council, the religious leaders. Uh, It was a puppet government that Rome had set up. I mean, Rome had their own leaders there, but they also set up corrupt Jewish leaders. Uh, And it was called the council, the Sanhedrin. And in that day, they were becoming increasingly hostile uh, towards the church because it was increasing in numbers and power in proclaiming the gospel. So in Acts chapter 5, 17, we read, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. <laughs> they were ticked off. That's Bible words for, they're, they're not happy. And they laid their hands on the apostles, not in a good way, and put them in the common prison. 
But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So here we see an angel of the Lord directly opposing the actions of the governing authorities. They told these guys to shut up, to stand down. And they're out there doing it. And so they have them arrested. They throw them in jail. And this angel comes and says, you're out of here. Now, go, stand in the temple and preach. Share this gospel. Um, and so, and that's exactly what the apostles go and do. So the council, they order the soldiers to come and to bring the prisoners. And they find soldiers go and they, they look and the, the cells are empty. And they're scratching their head and thinking, well, what happened to these guys? And they're, they're going through the temple precincts and they see them, they're out there preaching again. And so <laughs> they're doing as the angel had instructed. And in Acts 5.26, it says, and the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. So they went to arrest them again. And, and they brought them uh, without violence for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. So here these guys are again. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, and this is key, We ought to obey God rather than men. Peter continues, and and he basically unloads on these guys. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. In other words, you might have this governing thing going on here. Jesus is prince and savior. He is over all of this. He says that his reason in that was to give repentance to Israel. And the forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So as we hold this account in Acts chapter 5 up against what we see in Romans chapter 13. It's important to take a broader look at the order of these things. And I want to explain some things here. uh, Because it's really important that we have a clear understanding of why. Both of these passages exist and why it is that there are times where it absolutely applies to be obedient to the governing authorities and where times where we have a higher calling. There's limits to that, but it is a higher calling. So this is where we find the reconciliation between these two passages. Uh, One saying obey the government, the other saying defy it. I'll explain. I want you to understand something. God's word presents three institutions which God, that he has himself established and ordained for human society. There's the family, there's the state, and there's the church. All right? A term in our society which we have been seeing frequently used these days is the word overreach. You hear that a lot, don't you? Government overreach. Well, There are a great many instances where this term does apply and come into play. There are also some times where it doesn't, um, you know, when it's being used to support some subversive agenda. So 
let me explain this. Government doesn't get to dictate parental matters to children. Public schools are government institutions. When school teachers assert that they have a greater right to teach our children than parents do, that's overreach. It's crossing the boundary. My son in California is doing battle with the school system because they have demanded that his three daughters uh, do some medical protocols he doesn't agree with. And I'm not here to make a vax and no vax statement. I'm, that's not my purpose. But he fundamentally disagrees because they're stepping into his realm and telling him what he needs to do with his kids. He's not real happy about it. When the government steps in and begins to dictate matters of faith and practice, that's overreach. If I, as your pastor, began to mandate how you should vote or how you should raise your kids, that would most definitely be overreach. All right? Those are good applications of that word. The point, each of these three institutions has a sphere of authority. And there are limits in each to that authority, which must be both understood and respected. Okay? A parent's authority is limited to his or her own family. You don't like it when somebody tells you how to raise your kids <laughs> or your grandkids or whatever. I mean, I, I, I don't. I, that's something that God has given me to do. And he has, he has appointed me to that. A church leader's authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. When pastors get this wrong, they make messes. I've known some who have. And and, and it's understanding your place. It's understanding when overreach is coming into play. Uh, I, I have told you guys before, my pastor Bob... The day that he he seated me on the board of the church I was at in Northern California, stuck his finger in my face and said, now you listen to me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, sir. And I, I, and I was like six or eight inches taller than him, but he was big in that moment. And he said, these are not your sheep. These are God's sheep. You leave them alone. You love them. You pray for them. It is not your job to fix them. Is that clear? <laughs> I was like, I got it. Best pastoral advice I ever received. God's called me to love you folks. Does that mean that I'm not going to teach you God's word, the hard stuff and the easy stuff like I'm talking about? No, I will. I'll lay it before you. It's up to you. It's between you and God what you do with it. That's the beauty of expository teaching, you you trust that the Spirit of God, working in the hearts of the people of God, will give them the ability to apply that to their lives. So, government is specifically tasked with the protection of civil peace and the well-being within the boundaries of a nation or a community. God has not granted civil government authority over the doctrine, practice, or governance of the church, period. The overall framework we see in God's word limits the authority of each of these institutions to its own specific area of influence. The church doesn't have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. Parents don't have the right to usurp authority over civil matters and circumvent the law of the land. 
Similarly, government officials have no right to interfere in matters of faith and practice in a way that undermines or disregards the God-given authority of pastors and elders. Period. This is why Acts chapter 5 and Romans chapter 13 can coexist together compatibly. Do you understand? I mean, those three institutions, when you start when you start seeing overreach from one to the other, from the family to the church to the church to the government and the government to the church and the government to the family, it turns into a mess. There's clear delineations between those. This is also why the framers of the Constitution of the United States of America were very clear. There is a distinct separation between institutions of the church and the state. This isn't new stuff that I'm talking about. The way that these things are outlined and the way that they are broken down in God's word, they understood. And they gave place to that. And I want to also point out, these men didn't legislate our rights in this area. That's not what happened. They recognized them as inalienable rights. And inalienable right is something that is already in place. It is something that's given by God. And they simply ensured that those rights would be protected in our Constitution. Now, I want to talk about an issue that's happening today. January 16th, 2022. I'm just going to read through this. Bill C-4 passed through the Canadian House and the Senate without opposition. Not a single dissenting vote was cast by any member of the Conservative Party. It received royal assent, that's a confirmation vote, on December 8th, which means it will come into law after January 8th, 2022, last week. The bill amends the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. It criminalizes, among other things, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. In the preamble to the bill, it says that the belief that, and I quote, heterosexuality, cisgender, that means birth gender, uh, gender identity and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over their sexual orientations, gender identities and gender expressions, all of that is a myth. That's what it says. So according to Canadian law, as of January 8th, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be seen as a myth. The bill defines conversion therapy as, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's, person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, birth gender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth to repress or to, repro- or to reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, rep- repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or to repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to that person at birth. A lot of legalese there, but basically what it's saying is this, and the definition was written intentionally broad, so that, and it will, uh, it'll clearly be used against any pastor or elder who speaks against homosexuality or transgenderism or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual or transgender actions and lifestyle. Folks, this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about having dual citizenship and we have our citizenship in the state 
and our citizenship in heaven. And when something comes that the state puts forward that is against what God's word commands and what God's word proclaims, we have a duty and a responsibility to stand against it. And there's a movement in churches across Canada today, this morning, where pastors are standing up and they are preaching the biblical view of marriage and gender. And they are standing directly against the government. We need to pray. There are a number of churches in the United States that are doing the same thing, including this one, because I just did. <laughs> and we need to pray. What I'll tell you what, there are things underway in our own government that will duplicate this. I sometimes look at my wife and say, I don't have real good job security here. And she laughs and she says, you wouldn't do good in jail either, so you better just, you know, figure it out. My point, though, it means that as of January 8th, it's now against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design to marriage and sexuality. Quote, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of five years, not more than five years in prison for sharing God's design for marriage, sexuality. Now, it goes on. Similarly, every, quote, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. So you're telling me that you have gender dysphoria, which is a real thing. I I totally believe that. I get that. And I say, you know what? I want you to talk to my pastor. You know, I I know he would love to sit down with you and, and, and to share with you what God's word has to say. I mean, I'd be happy to do that too. But, you know, just telling you that I would like for you to do that, that's adverse. I could go to prison for two years. This is insane. And it's happening Today, this is not out there in the ether somewhere in some abstract thought or principle. This is real. And people's lives are being profoundly affected. I'm going to move on with the text. In verses 3 and following, Paul goes into why it's important for very practical reasons to be subject to civil government. Like I said, there are clear exceptions. We're talking about some this morning. In verse 3, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. So the word terror there is the Greek word phobos. That's where we get the word phobic or phobia. He says, Having uh, or involving an extreme or irrational fear of or an aversion to something, that's what phobos means. It means that you are... You're, you're, you have a phobia about the government. He says, you want to not be phobic? <laughs> Do what the government says. Obey the law. He's talking about people that have a habit or a lifestyle of being lawbreakers. He's not talking about somebody that, you know, is an upstanding citizen and all of that. He's talking about people that claim Christ, but they're involved in all of this. That's the clear delineation that he's making. He's saying, you know what? You want to be unafraid? That's the, that's the word phobio, phobio, but the Greek word me, me, in front of it means to negate that. You want to be not phobic? You want to be without fear? Obey the government. Obey the law. 
the New American Standard Bible uh, renders this verse in, in verse 3 like this. It says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. You'll have praise from the same. Very practical. Very practical. It's, it's very practical advice about being a law-abiding citizen. And folks, we are called to be law-abiding citizens. Not only that, we don't want to be in a posture of fear because we're disobeying the law. What he's saying here is that's tantamount to disobeying the Lord. He uses those interchangeably. He's essentially saying that there's a cause and effect relationship between the law and the lawbreaker. And and again, very practically, if you don't want to be afraid of the police, don't do things that are going to cause the police to come. If you don't want to be afraid of uh, having time in the clink, don't do things that will get you time in the clink. <laughs> it's cause and effect. He's essentially saying that this is, it's a cause and effect thing. Verse 4, he says, For he's God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. <laughs> be phobic. <laughs> That's a, that word again. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices, underline that word, practices evil. This is somebody who is involved in practicing evil. This is not somebody that runs a red light. Yeah, you might still <laughs> have to worry about the police. If you ever run a red light, what's the first thing you do? Is there a cop around? Yeah. He, he, what he's saying here, he's, this is, he is God's minister to you for good. And, and folks, we know that there's no guarantee that this person is going to be godly <laughs> or not. Uh, he may not know God personally, but that doesn't change the fact that he is the Lord's man officially. All right? God will use that. He will use the actions of that leader to accomplish his purposes. This is a key understanding and, and it's not a new understanding from the standpoint of God's word. This is why King David repeatedly had the opportunity to kill King Saul. And he said, I will not come against the Lord's anointed. He knew that Saul was God's man. Saul was an evil king. It started out all right, but he went down pretty quick. He was an evil king. He chased David around for 10 years, trying to kill him. And yet, when David had opportunity, he said, no, I'm not going to come against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to stretch out my hand to kill Saul, even though I have opportunity. Because he understood as long as Saul was king, it was not his place to avenge. Period. The New Testament tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not yours. When he says he doesn't bear the sword in vain, this is a strong statement. It's concerning the power which God vests in civil government. And God has vested that power in the government. And what he's saying when he says he doesn't bear the sword in vain is that he's saying the sword isn't, it's not just a symbol of power here. (laughs) The sword here, I believe, speaks of the ultimate power of civil government, that is to inflict punishment. And God has appointed that. But remember its purpose. People don't use swords to cause hurt. It's sort of the same idea as you don't ever pull a gun out unless you're going to use it. It's not for a threat. 
It's because it's necessary at that time. So that's not bearing the sword in vain is when it is used to accomplish the purposes of addressing the lawbreaker. And I believe that when he talks about this this passage, this verse here, it could easily infer capital punishment. Uh, it's not just an Old Testament practice. Now, a common argument against capital punishment is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where we're told, thou shalt not kill. However, if you look in the original language, in the Hebrew language, it is literally saying, thou shalt not murder. You can have your own conclusions about that, just giving you what God's word has to say. He doesn't bear the sword in vain because sometimes the sword is necessary when it comes to punitive action by the state. Therefore, in verse 5, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So as Christians, we must be subject to the government. Not only because we fear punishment, but because we know it is right in the sight of God. We want to live lives that are out in the open. The Apostle John says in First John, he says, walk in the light as he is in the light. We don't want to walk in darkness. John addresses that in, in the Gospel of John where he says that men love darkness more than they love light because their deeds were evil. So they want to cover those deeds with darkness. No, we're called to be children of the light. The word must here means to be obligated, to be in subjection. It's an obligation. And that's not overreach. But our God-ordained obligation to be subject to an imperfect, often godless, more and more corrupt, human government. We have two motivations. What he says here, one is fear, the other is conscience. And I, I hope for you that that's backwards. That the first is conscience. I want to live my life in a way that's pleasing to God. And then fear. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. I was trying to pass my wife in the mobile home park. We were living at her mom's place. I was trying to pass her on Friday. Uh, she pulled in first and I was trying to get around her so that I could pull the car in first because I wanted her car to be last in because it's first out. And so I kind of gunned it a little bit and whipped around her and pulled in. And the next thing I know, a neighbor is walking down the street wondering who that speeder is. And I felt horrible. I, I was like, I'm not, I, I said, I'm a 10 mile an hour guy. Really, I am, I am. You know, and I'm trying to defend myself. And he understood there was another person with a red car that routinely drives fast, but I remember thinking, oh, I don't want to be in trouble, and, and, and I don't want to teach Romans 13 on Sunday, and this is how, you know, I'm going through this whole deal. Anyway, my conscience kicked in. I don't want to be in trouble, but I do want to live a life that honors God, and we're called to be good citizens. We're called to honor the king. We'll look at that. Verse 6, he says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Why does this verse have to be in here? Um, <laughs> seriously, he says, for be- because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Now, in a perfect world, <laughs> to qualify this, Romans thirteen six is saying that taxation, taxes collected, are to be used by the government to accomplish the job of restraining evil and maintaining order in society. Not 
to further an evil agenda or to enrich those who govern. I said in a perfect world, enough said. Knowing there's corruption, seriously, folks, even corruption that abounds should never be a reason to not heed this passage. The option we have here is what we call anarchy. And God does not appoint the body of Christ to anarchy. Standing up, yeah. Taking every legal means necessary, yeah. Been there, done that. We as a church have been there and done that. Taking matters into our own hands, no. We dishonor the Lord. The point in this is we as believers can live victoriously. We truly can. In a democracy, in a monarchy, even in a totalitarian regime. Many have. Many do. The truth of it is, is that no earthly government is any better than the people who comprise it. It's why no form of human government is perfect. And you will never find that. Not on this side of heaven. The only ideal government is a theocracy. Not a democracy. Not a totalitarian thing. Not a monarchy. But a theocracy where God is king. God is the ruler. With Jesus himself as king. And when he returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. To rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years with a rod of iron, that always gets me. He will set up a perfect government. Until then, we've got what we've got. It's important to remember that Paul wrote this letter. Uh, <laughs> he wrote this section on subjection to the government while Nero was the emperor of Rome. That's a really important distinction to make, gang. It really is. He's not writing this because his favorite guy was in office. The atrocities committed under Nero are worth noting. He was ruthless. He blamed Christians for the fire that destroyed, which he probably said himself, it's widely thought anyway, that destroyed half of Rome. Those believers who were used as entertainment with the animals in the arena were Nero's job. It was his doing. They were, or he, another thing he did was he covered people with pitch or tar and he would put them on stanchions and then light them on fire to illuminate his courts. He had his wild parties and such. Still others were sewn up in animal skins, thrown to wild dogs to be torn to pieces. This guy was a bad dude. He was the worst emperor that Rome ever knew, before or after. And Paul is writing, saying, you know, you need to be subject to the government. I think that what he has to say has some weight. He knew what it was like to live on the other side of a good government. The point in that is in our darkening social and political landscape, the one that we live in currently, It's important to remember that while God ordains civil government, that he will hold wicked rulers fully to account. They may, it might look like they're winning. It may look like they're getting away with it. It may look really bad for the church. Right now it does for the church in Canada coming to a nation near you. But he's still on the throne. He's still vindicating justice. 
he is still calling evil to account. He is still working behind the scenes, working things that we have no concept of. That's why trusting God is so important and very important when you're looking at a bleak political landscape. Remember the bookends? Keep in mind the heavenly nature of this passage. It's about love. It's a stark reminder that we're to live differently, motivated by love in a loveless, godless world. We stick out when we do. In chapter 12, verse 9, or 19, I mean, uh, part of the bookends we're looking at, the apostle sets the stage for this passage when he says, uh, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He reminds us in verse 21 of chapter 12, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with what? With good. Overcome evil with good. So how do we do that? Fair question. Verse 7. He says, render therefore, therefore, on account of all that I've been saying, render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. And honor to whom honor. And when he says render, what, that word, it's an accounting term, and it means, it, it literally means to make good on your obligations. So make good on your obligations to pay your taxes, your customs, fear, to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. I want to close by considering the words of the Apostle Peter. Remembering that both he and the Apostle Paul would eventually be executed by the totalitarian regime, Rome, under which they lived. This is a beautiful passage. It's a companion passage to Romans 7 here. And Peter writes this in in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. He says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to kings as supreme or to governors or those who are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. He says, for this is the will of God. Understand this. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, for evil. But as bondservants of God, you have no rights. You surrendered those when you went to the cross. And trusted Jesus for your sins. So this passage echoes and sums up the first seven verses in Romans 13 that we're looking at. And Peter sums up here in verse 17. He says, honor all people. Love the brotherhood. We are to esteem people of the household of faith. Somebody was talking about it the other night. That that our brothers and sisters in Christ, we give them top spot. He says, honor the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. He says, fear God. Honor the king. It's all summed up in that. Peter says here that it's summed up in love. We're loving the brotherhood. Fearing God. Honoring the king. It doesn't mean that we have to go along with everything that comes down the pike. It means that we stand up when it is clearly indicated it's time to stand up. 
But it does mean that we're citizens of heaven first. Citizens of this earth next. I think about people that don't have this understanding and, and it, it, it kind of makes me bonkers <laughs> because the reason that laws come down like they are in Canada right now, the reason people are trying to push godless agendas and legislation in our nation right now is because of a lack of understanding and the, the delineation between the institutions of the government, the family, and the church. Why do you think the family is under such attack? Folks, we need to keep those clear in our minds. We need to keep clear our priorities that we're citizens of heaven first, citizens of the United States, citizens of Oregon next, and that our motive in obeying the government boils down to love. We might not love the government, but if you name the name of Christ, we love God. And he says, do it. So I'm going to do it. Let's pray. Father, as, as we look at this and, and go through, and, and as we work our way through a potentially difficult passage, I pray for clarity in the hearts and minds of each person uh, here, each person watching this online. We pray, Father, that you would give us clarity, that we would understand our rights and our responsibilities from a kingdom perspective. And we would know, Lord, that we're children of the king first and foremost. And we thank you that you've added us to your kingdom, that you've given us the name of Christ. And we pray, Father, that we would be good citizens in the world that we're living in. So we give ourselves afresh to you. We pray that, Lord, I pray for anyone that doesn't know you, anyone within the sound of my voice, that they would see that these are kingdom principles and that they may not make sense, but they can easily make sense. Once someone does business with you, turns from their sin, and, and gives their life to Christ. So I pray that if that's the case with anyone in the sound of my voice, that, that they would do that today. So we give ourselves afresh to you. We pray that your will would be done in us and through us. Thank you for this understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.